Hello and welcome to Film in the Alps. I am Martina De Biasi, and today I will be talking to Jeff Price. Jeff, hello. A very warm welcome to our show. Thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. So I'm really, really happy to talk to you, Jeff, because we have met uh, in the arc of a couple of days in Bolzano, because um, some works of yours have been part of uh, an exhibition at, Muse at Museion. And you have also been part of uh, a masterclass for the Zelig School for Documentary Students here in Bolzano, where I, where I also work. So I'm really, really happy to talk to you because you were such an inspiring uh, teacher and you were so generous with your um, experiences uh, of your craft. So uh, I'm really looking forward to our chat. Great. Thank you. I, I'm looking forward as well. Let's do it. Yes, absolutely. Let's do it. Um, so... Um, I think usually people start with the beginnings, right? So how did you become a, a, a filmmaker? How did you uh, start filming? Um, I'm going to ask a different question. Um, would you say that filming or filmmaking is today, after a long stretch of your life, still the central thing in your working life? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's all I do. Um, if I'm not doing, even when I'm not doing it, I'm doing it. So I feel that it's integrated into the fabric of my life to the point where my own general perception of the world is data for what then you know, enters into my practice as a filmmaker. So that is, um, uh, that is day and night. Um, even even while asleep, because as we know, dreams are very important and, and have a kind of interesting, very hard to pin down language, kind of a meta language. And I think film is, a meta, is, is a, not a really fully understood language. And we have so many tropes of the filmmaking language that we can get by just fine with um, master shot and close-ups and over the shoulders and cutaways. But I think that there's really so much more um, meaning that we can get out of this relationship between what our organic vision is and what we can do within a frame. Yes, and the difference is that we, in a certain sense, can decide what the, what the uh, meaning of a film is, but can we do that in a dream also, or, you know, how the, the difference of the two things might sometimes be, yeah, the, the line might be blurry, but in the end, if I watch something made by someone else, it might as well me being in their dream in a certain sense, right? So, right. so Jeff, um, I did jump a bit uh, to the end, let's say, or to, to the now, let's say, um, but um, how did you actually become a person that films? I did start filming pretty young. Um, I, I, I had the desire to film as a kid. So when I was 11, um, and it was through witnessing home movies being made. Uh, but it wasn't actually the filming that interests me so much as the projection of the images later. And I think my father filming, um, uh, I wasn't even sure what he was doing, but this projector that we had in the basement that could turn on in the dark and be what he saw and be a way of seeing myself and a way of sort of capturing the recent past through an apparatus, through a kind of beautiful apparatus. That was something. And in those days with this, um, Prior to Super 8 and all the kind of auto-threading and cartridge loading, we had to do these things manually. And the projectors showed the inner workings were on the outside. So you could see the film strip entering into a sprocket gear and forming a loop and going down into the gate and being taken up by a loop and winding up on a reel. And everything about 
this apparatus was fascinating. Um, and I had, at the time, you know, I interacted with maybe school materials, right? Crayons um, and television maybe, and um, but nothing, nothing had the mystery of that crazy projector. And something also just funny detail is the brand name of the projector and the camera that my father had. I guess he bought them as a package. The brand name was Revere. So that word, Revere, to revere. Before I knew that it meant to honor, um, I thought it just meant movie camera. Oh, wow. So so would you say like you were around five, six? He probably always had this um, during your whole life, right? Right. I was younger when he, um, when he was doing it and when I first saw it, much younger. But when I thought I want to interact with it, I can identify that time because as soon as I had that desire, I asked permission to operate the camera. And he said, no, you're too young, but um, when you're 12, you'll be old enough. And I think his assumption was that I would forget, but I just checked off the days on the calendar. And the day I turned 12, I was like, okay, hand it over. And so I made my first film with, my friend Ronnie, who lived down the block, and um, we filmed our play. And it's more or less what I continued to do with, with a few um, branching off now and then into some diversions, but always coming back to the idea of the home movie that you're filming something that in the moment is an event that you're, you want to be in. You want to, you want to amplify your experience of being in it. That's very interesting because if I think about what you do, um, hmm, let's say how much does the filming have to do with wanting to preserve the memory? And how much does your filming prevent you, in a certain sense, to live what's happening? Uh, it doesn't prevent me from being in the moment, because it, it amplifies my sense of the moment. And it's not so much that I want to retrieve the memory in this other form. I think it has more to do with uh, just on a gut level, expanding the moment, expanding the time and giving yourself a kind of more dimensional view of the moment so that you're living in it and you're kind of making an impression with it. So, and, and then I think this idea of memory, you know, what's memory? How is a memory formed? I think memory was formed in a very different way before we had cinema. I think cinema has taught us a way to conceive of memory that's become the modern way. Um, prior to cinema, I'm not sure what the assumptions would have been about memory. Uh, this, a still image uh, prior, you know, or, um, uh, or language. What forms memory? Does, does language form memory in a way that's dominant over image? And um, so in this way, I would also say it's the challenge of introducing a new model of what memory is, is parallel to seeing what is left to be said with the image. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, um I, I had this image in my mind. Um, do you remember the first, one of the first strips, I think, was a horse galloping, or I don't know how, how you say that, a horse. Yeah, this is, the, yeah, this is the Moybridge photographs that were. Exactly. To, to settle a wager. 
And that, exactly, and that, and before, if you look at pictures of, uh, of uh, horses around the world, they were always depicted with the front and the hind legs stretched out, let's say. But a horse doesn't, doesn't trot like that. The horse uh, flies in the air, having the back and the forth and, and the legs in front and back tucked under itself, right? We didn't know that. So in our mind, we had this picture of these horses flying in the air um, in a completely, let's say, wrong way. But was it wrong? We don't know, because it's, right. you know. And in a way, cinema had been invented prior to this through sort of magic lantern shows and shadow, you know, shows. And um, and even in a way, I would say uh, stereo photography um, was a kind of cinema and the cyclorama image that you step into and wraps around you is a kind of cinema. And the popularity of these things disappeared when we had proper cinema, which uh, once it appeared seemed to be a necessity, a necessity of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, and, and it's very interesting because if we think about the, the beginnings of cinema and then we go on through time before, let's say also the, um, pinhole cameras, right? Before they had, um, before they put something on there to record that image, it was a, um, you know, a show element. You could go in and watch the outside from this little pinhole and stuff. But I think the uh, physics or the technology was very evident at that time, as it was evident even in a bit more complex way when you were looking at your projector. But now I have the feeling that the uh, technology, let's say, and the way that light behaves is very divorced from, um, from the experience of a user who is not, you know, uh, a technician or is not a camera person or is not an editing person. So I think it's very interesting to, to maybe try once to go back to these analog forms just to see how, how much also we seeing and understanding this relatively simple but very complex um, technology can give us, can open us to a world of, um, of experimentation that maybe has, has gone away right now, um, as we also talked uh, at Zelig in the masterclass, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, how, how is your approach to digital media right now, even if you have... Any thoughts about that that you deem interesting and important? Yeah, it's far different. I still, I use it. Um, uh, I don't have, you know, some reason to be against it. I, I think it's more in the realm of expressing ideas. It's more of a conceptual um, form. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, what, what guides me with analog cinema is um, it allows one to be a formalist and it allows you to kind of, whatever you're doing, um, reverse engineer your thinking back to what the materials are um, and you go back to a very definite place. And... Uh, and at every and at every step, the, the way these materials are operating is very evident um, and immediate. So uh, that helps me, and um, it helps me just formulate what the pieces are that I can rearrange. So uh, I can, once it's just an autonomous image, I can think about making a similar image with. Um, digital media um, and and at times that's what I do but there's less um, there's the, the production of the material at times it's exactly the same when you're holding an Alexa let's say the strange thing about the Alexa is is the way you feel when you turn it on and off, that there's no change. So when, when I did, I did one feature kind of Hollywood movie, actually takes place 
in Los Angeles. It's literally a Hollywood movie. And, um, and at a certain point, I decided to shoot on film, 16 millimeter film, that we were going to use uh, uh, an anamorphic format. So a, a format that's somehow a little bit like CinemaScope. And I had to come up with a reason to justify to my producers uh, shooting on film because it adds some complications. You know, where the hell are we going to get the extra money? And I mean, we were shooting in LA, so the labs were there. But if you're on location, there are no more local labs anywhere. So people are nervous about shooting on film. Things can go wrong on film, as they can, as they can in digital. So, um, so I had to make up reasons because the real reason I wanted to do it, I couldn't explain. The real reason was intangible. Can't be put into words. So I made up fake reasons that were good enough that everyone completely agreed. And then once it was decided, every single person expressed gratitude that we were shooting film. Everyone, I mean, the production assistants, the drivers, every, everyone found meaning in that choice and especially the actors. And with the actors, it, it reorganizes, um, it kind of, it re, it's a different negotiation uh, around the time that they spend acting, that the time isn't free. And um, to simply roll the camera is making a commitment. And when, when, you, when you roll, you're committing something practical, valuable, material. And there's, um, that has a duration attached to what it is. And that's the exchange. And the actor, in exchange for taking, uh, making that investment in the time, uses that bracket of time to do what they do. And I think that they're, um, in a way, I think they really feel that they're being treated more, fa more fairly, that it's a, um, a more balanced relationship with the production for them to shoot film. And also the concentration, I think, of uh, knowing that we don't have 17 takes. We just have one, two, three takes. Um, you know, of course, every take costs a lot of money. So now we are concentrated. What I'm doing is not going into a digital form, but it's going on something that I could touch if I wanted it. Like all these things go together to make, you know, the, the container of concentration, I have the feeling. Um, so I, I also agree that analog materials have a, a magic to them that is so incredibly fascinating. Right. Before, though, I'm going to ask um, about your processes um, and your films that you have done. I do want to ask you, for our listeners who don't know you, what are the departments, let's say, of uh, filmmaking that you have been a part of? Right, right. I mean, I started, as I said, I started in home movies. Um, and then when I went to school... Um, I was kind of a no good truant. So the only thing I was capable of doing um, was working with a movie camera. So I went to school for film, you know, simply because I, it was kind of, I thought I was cheating because I already knew the technique of film. Uh, and I ended up by incredible good fortune uh, at Bard College in the 70s when the faculty were, you know, all coming out of uh, anthology film archives and they were some of the great visionary filmmakers of the day. And so my first teacher was the filmmaker Bruce Bailey, who, um, you know, was just so inspiring. And, and um, so, so and, and gave me a way to continue making home movies. <laughs> And then um, the first films that I made kind of that I still would consider showing were the films that I made, you know, directly after school. These were in the 80s. And throughout the 80s, I made kind of a 
you know, what now I consider sort of a long series or suite of films that are silent and were uh, made in standard eight millimeter on this earlier format that I first came to know uh, and all shot in Kodachrome and um, never approaching anything resembling story, uh, but maybe portraiture um, and, uh, and, and looking for a visual style that on the one hand acknowledged that it was coming directly out of Jonas Makis, Marie Macon, Brackage, Bruce Bailey, etc., cetera, uh, and acknowledging that while really trying to make something that had a different quality that I could stand by. And, and this went on through the 80s until just by fluke, another fluke, is um, uh, the, the photographer, Bruce Weber, who's well, mostly known for his fashion photography, but he's just a brilliant artist, happened to see um, or hear of my films and then just called me one day, can I come over? And he came over like, I thought it was like a, you know, like your friend down the block calling you, hey, can I come over? Yeah, and this guy came up, this really kind of charming person, and I showed him no more than six minutes of this material. And he said, that's it, this is, you're who I'm looking for, and let's make films together. And we went off for uh, about three years and made um, two feature length documentaries and five short films. And uh, the last project was this film documentary on Chet Baker called Let's Get Lost, which, uh, you know, um, had the Critics Award at Venice and was nominated for Academy Award and kind of put me into a different category as a, as a technician. And suddenly I had a trade as a technician. I really never thought that what I did could find a place in the film market. So I was um, a very in-demand director of photography and I think influential. And, um, and then, uh, but being a director of photography was no fun uh, for me, very awkward. because I kind of really didn't know how to do anything other than the thing I did. So uh, I was very well suited to be a director and somehow within a year that happened and I was directing. So then I spent from, uh, you know, about 20 years in having this trade. But that entire time, thank goodness, um, I was always able to continue to make things that I consider to be works of art that had an audience. So just about once a year, I would have an exhibition in some museum somewhere. And um, at the end of, um, you know, there was this funny interplay between what I was trying to know and understand as a craftsperson in the field of, you know, co commercial cinema at the highest level and, um, and my own personal technique. And, I always thought that these things kind of dovetailed. And in fact, the trade allowed for kind of economy um, in which I could produce these other kinds of films. So they were very much married. And I thought I needed to be good at anything. I needed to really practice all the time. So at that time, for, for in, within those um, vaguely 20 years, um, I had a Bolex in my backpack every day of my life. I never was out without this backpack and the Bolex. And I tried to use it every day, but I had the, it available to me every day. And, um, and through that material, I started making more experimental films. And, um, and then in 20, oh, I forget exactly, but, but, um, when, 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 when my kid, my, I, I had a kid, my, my partner and I in 1995, and that really brought filmmaking to a whole other level because the desire to film your kid is another experience that is powerful. 
And when I did it in 16 millimeter and, um, and I reviewed that material, I was so absolutely blown away by how much more was delivered to me in those images than in any of the formats that I had been using. And I thought, I really need to make a commitment to this. So, um, uh, so I just started filming everything. And around, let's say, 17 years later, I thought, I'd better make a film from all of this. And the only way I can do that is to stop filming. <laughs> because as, uh, if there's no end bracket, there's no way of assembling it into an object that would be a film. So I made a film called Stop um, that is probably the best representation of that period uh, in time. And then immediately after finishing Stop, I ended up, uh, I met someone who worked on my crew, who turned out um, was the daughter of a very little known, underappreciated, but great jazz pianist. And when uh, she, she, when somehow it came out that I was a big fan of her father's music, she had met so few non-musicians that knew anything about her father, she allowed me to be kind of the receptacle of her life story. And um, she would write me um, letters that would be further episodes. And that eventually became published. And then... That book was optioned by wonderful producers, the best imaginable producers that might might um, buy that, which is uh, the company Bonafide. And about a year after they had been looking to make it a film, one day they called me and they said, we think you should make the film. They didn't really know how much I had to do with it being written. So, uh, so I made that. I made that film, and I would say that's the most important work that I, that I had done in that period of time. I'm sorry, could you say the title again? Uh, that film is called Lowdown. Lowdown with John Hawkes and Elle Fanning and Peter Dinklage and Flea and Glenn Close. So I had the best imaginable cast. Each one of them brought their A-game. I mean, they came ready to work and were... Incredible. And then, um, uh, and then after I finished Lowdown, I kind of went to a pretty bad depression because it was suddenly this experience that I, that was so exciting that it lasted for, you know, it took four or five years to make it. And then suddenly it had lived its life and now it was going to be, you know, sure it's on Amazon Prime, but And I felt very depleted. And on this day where I felt that, what am I going to do? I, I, I'm reaching the bottom today. What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to go have a coffee. So I went to my favorite coffee shop in the East Village, Brasso, because I love the, the barista. And he's like, he's like the bartender that you can just pour your soul to. And I went in to pour my soul over an espresso. And I bump into Andy Lampert, who was the, um, um, the, he was at the time the archivist at Anthology Film Archives. And he said, wow, what a great coincidence that I should see you because I just got a grant from the Laurel Foundation to um, preserve eight millimeter from the 80s. And I need 12 artists and I only had 11 and duh, Of course, it's self-evident that you are the 12th. So, um, so we went back and we revisited all of that eight millimeter film and I decided to make a new work out of it all. And this took up a very, very large um, uh, moment in my life. And it's the singular work that came out of those years. And, uh, and now I'm both working on a screenplay Uh, and sort of semi-pre-production. And I just finished a film that is um, a collaboration with the artist Josiah McElhaney, which is about mystical thought. And uh, it's, we'll, 
we have a premiere scheduled in the fall for that. And what's the name for, for that film? Uh, that is called Portrait of a Library, A Secret World. Mm-hmm. So I'm super mind blown because I have the feeling that you have never, let's say, planned your career in a certain sense. Like, how did things change from the 80s when you were making 8mm silent films? And I assume that you had also another job, maybe, just financially to be able to, to do that. Oh, oh many. Yeah. <laughs> many. Bike Messenger was kind of uh, a central one. Oh, see? So so you, you had to support yourself with other jobs, of course, to do what you do. And then and then you exploded kind of in, in a cinematography way where you did directing and stuff. But have you always been a person where projects just needed to be made? Or did you at a certain point make a conscious decision to say, um, I want to do this and not this. Like, I, I want to think differently about my work. I don't know. No, no, no conscious decisions and, and no plans. And not only did I ever plan for um, what the way, the shape of my career, I don't plan what the movies are. If I plan something, it's a catastrophe. You know, if I have an idea and I set out to execute the idea, I'm pretty sure I'm going to realize the idea is not very good. So, um, so I kind of, I kind of wait and, and try to, try to push forward, um, try to sketch, doodle, keep my eyes open, um, keep possibilities open and allow for serendipity and cosmic coincidence. And, um, this film, um, The, the, the Secret World is kind of a, also about cosmic coincidence and how being a filmmaker is kind of a practice that generates these uncanny events, these intersections, fateful intersections that just seem too impossibly meant, uh, um, predestined uh, to be without meaning. And, uh, and, And that's at such a high rate of occurrence. So, yeah, but you have to be, you have to allow yourself to be open to these things, I guess. And um, because we are creatures made of stories, no? We tell ourselves the story of who we are, of what we do, of why we do things. And, um, and just to allow yourself to be open to let things come to you might, I mean, either you are a person like like that or like you maybe or I have to pull the brakes on my fear to be able to just allow things to happen would you say that is something that you had to work against or with or is it just something you do and is your work practice something that you just started to to develop while living I guess well I also have faced fear about it And, um, but there's nothing I can do. So that's, that is what it is. Um, I don't know that that's what I'm working with though. Um, I'm, but I'm not sure what I'm working with. <laughs> uh, I'm working with the idea of the, the, uh, the relationship between the frame and the unframed. And I'm working with trying to um, express these binaries that don't seem uh, compatible, that contradict one another uh, and not and not repress one of the options in the binary. To me, that's the language. That's language and that's self. Um, and I also think that um, that cinema is... Uh, expression of self, um, even when it's made collaboratively. It can be, there. I think there's such a thing as the collective self. So it's, um, I think the main um, exercise 
that cinema asks of us is to balance this relationship between um, what's framed with meaning and what is unframed without meaning. Mm-hmm. Yes. I need to think about this, I guess. It, it's, it is what, the, there's two ways of thinking of the visual field. One is through a kind of a window, but not, this metaphor always seemed wrong to me. Um, just, I, I like to just say frame, one contained where you're determining the limit and that limit is within your, within the field of kind of looking ahead um, in, in the way that a second in time is kind of a conceivable now. Um, so, so this idea of the framed image is to resolve that there's, there's that. And there's also the, the, or so that's one kind of visual field and visual thinking. And the other is the field that actually extends beyond your periphery. And which is an absolute mystery of perception that there's an end to our visual field, that it comes to an end, it can only go so far. And yet there's no visual horizon. There's no, if I asked you to draw what that intersection were, looks like, there's not even a way of conceiving in your mind what that image might be. So, um, so, this, 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 these two things are so different from one another. So I think when we're, when through cinema, we're making the cinema appear to have a cognizance, right? There's the people within the frame seem to have a soul. I think it's because it has um, this uh, quality where um, we're kind of, seeing it as an objective thing before us and seeing it as some um, subjectivity that exists um, only from some perspective, some human perspective. And that's that oscillation is film language. It's the film language. It's, it, it's that oscillation that um, I think is some beginning to answering another completely unanswered question. Why do we give ourselves away to the trance of a film instantaneously? How are we so immersed so immediately? Yes, that is because it's kind of a, an incredible, let's say, magic thing, right? It's obviously we know it's not there. We know it's it's not real in a sense, but we don't, we just, it just switches off completely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But now that you said that, I, I really understand. We uh, saw your movie Stop, um, as you said before, the one where you filmed your kid for, for 17 years. Well, no, I filmed, I filmed the world for 17 years. Yes. And in the process of filming the world, it was unavoidable to include my kid who, who I just, loved to film but he was um but it also was producing a kind of binary because because what makes me choose filming what makes me choose burning some celluloid you know taking out that goddamn camera out of my backpack and it's it's um it's when you look forward and there's well i i said this in the in the class i i quoted my friend amy silman the painter who in a discussion on visual beauty, she said, visual beauty is when you look and you want to lick it with your eyes. And there's this moment where I am outside and I don't know why, but I want to lick it with my eyes and the camera comes out. Now with, with, with my kid, it's a little different. It's not like he's in some visual field that's so beautiful. It's, it's just the presence is so beautiful to me. So the reasons for those two operations are very different. But the project was to film everything. And um, at the end, when deciding to make Stop, I, uh, it was very hard to avoid 
my kid being a subject, but but I thought it's not right. There's, there was some ethical uh, resistance that I had for it being the subject. So I really, in order to to investigate what that all meant, I needed to investigate it in the context of the much, much larger project. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, also, I can feel, as you were talking before about this, um, let's say, searching with your, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm using the wrong words, but searching with your camera for these limits of perception or visual field, I think you kind of do that in stop in a certain way. And on the other hand, uh, the quality of of the image you portray or the image you show us when you when you film when you film your son, it's completely different. It's a it's a different quality. So I understand the two, like these two opposites of of percept not even of perception but of emotion. When you when you 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 cannot be. You cannot not have emotions when you film your your child, um, but you can. Very tricky thing because because no one else might. It may just be that no one else will. So when you're doing it and you intend to show it and you intend for it to have meaning as an image, it requires a lot of work around that image to to get someone else to understand the thing that you're trying to express about them. Yes. But it, but I, I thought stop is a, is an experimental film in a, in a certain sense. It is an experimental film, but it also has. Um, I'm an editor, so dramaturgy is that what makes my heart sing. Let's say, <laughs> so um, I have the feeling that with stop you also were able to create a, a dramaturgical tension over two hours. Over two hours that really resolves itself uh, like a spearhead in the end. Like in the, in the beginning, it's, it's you filming everything, as you said, and then it comes together. And I, I personally have never watched an experimental film for two hours, first of all. Um, secondly, the, the way you were filming had an inter- internal tension, um, like all the shots, uh, the way you edited, the way you used the, the, your, your camera to point it somewhere. Or not to point it somewhere, or to, or to point it and move it had something intrinsically interesting, as as you said, and I understood it now when you were talking about these limits. Like you were, I have the feeling now that I saw you looking at those edges, like searching for the edge of right. perception, and then and then putting it all together, yeah, in this story that is um, that is um, life. You know, right. so I, I'm, I'm, I'm. The more we talk about it, the more I'm fascinated. I need right. to watch it again. <laughs> I, I do think it asks a lot of the audience, and there's so many, so many unanswered questions in it. And someone might sit in it and um, uh, be distracted by how much they don't know, because uh, it's always who is that person? What is that place? You know, where are we going? over and over, but um, my uh, contract with the audience is um, that uh, if they keep the faith and get to the end, that there is this funny condensation that takes place in the end where it suddenly becomes one film. It's not itself until it's completely kind of ingested. And then there's a clarity that comes at that last at that very last moment um and and um so i i i I hope that that is true oh man it's so true (laughs) it's it's uh, it was an experience seriously really really um a really strong experience um maybe i have one other question that um maybe rounds up what we were talking about, um, you are a person that really thinks about filmmaking or film. Who really thinks about um, the 
theoretical constructs around film and tries to deconstruct them in a certain sense, or at least that's what I understood uh, of, of your work or that's what I get from your work. Um, how would you advise a person that starts very young right now to and wants and has this burning desire to film or to be a filmmaker or a filmer? Um, what do you think is the let's say, right course of action? What, what, what advice could you give them to, to start in their um, creating life? Right. I would say um, it's, really, it's really personal, all personal advice. I wouldn't give, I don't know whether or not there's meaningful advice that I could give regarding career or technique or you know, how to begin. It's different for everyone. But I think that... Um, One's work is an extension of one's person. And uh, I think we have to um, take care of ourselves. You know, there's aspects to, you know, what people, curiosity is a really important component moving forward. Uh, ambition is important. Um, uh, knowledge of other films is important. Um, so all, all of that. So maybe, maybe it's, uh, see, see films and see the history of film. And, um, but I think that really it, it's personhood and being an ethical person. And that is actually the, if you're, and, and I think if you're truthful with yourself, about that, you'll either become the filmmaker you're meant to be, or you'll become that other thing that you were actually meant to be. So um, uh, it's, it's the only advice that I'm certain is good. I am gonna add one other insight that I think is maybe has a little bit better clarity than um, this idea of visual fields. And that I realized something about filming and that operation. And it's that uh, looking through the viewfinder, looking through that scope that is the camera finder. And what is the operation that's taking place inside of that scope? Because you're in this very strange personal space. And, um, and this, this act of framing is happening in a kind of clinical way. But you also have an inner vision, a vision that has nothing to do with what's really there. So in other words, if I look at this room and I close my eyes and I can still kind of imagine it, but that's, I'm not looking. So in your um, inner vision, there's a desire for it to look a certain way. And through the scope, it's not going to look that way unless you find it. And so this operation is when you find a way of superimposing your inner vision with what you've organized inside of that frame. And suddenly they kind of lock together. And when that has happened, you have, I can almost guarantee, you have some kind of perfect composition that produces meaning and has a voice. Has a voice that if you produced enough of, if you accomplished that enough times, to produce enough images that way, people would recognize it as your voice and they'd be able to know whether or not you took a picture if they saw one of yours hidden among, uh, you know, many others. Yeah, yeah, oh my gosh. Like this is actually that what um, prevents me from being a good camera woman, I guess. Because my inner vision or what I want to show is nearly never the thing that I see in the camera. So I can think about composition. I can think about the picture. I can look through the viewfinder and say, oh, look, this is a nice picture because I know no, it's in the brain and it's not in the heart. It's not something that overimposes. Like I'd never look into the viewfinder and say, ah, this is what I want to show. I always have to search for a good image, let's say. So well, I think that, um, you know, you could like vacuum cleaner around with the scope looking for it, but I don't actually don't think that's what happens. And now that I think 
uh, um, now that I take the thought out another step, I think it requires a lot of work of filming and looking at what you filmed and filming and looking at what you film and that you kind of build up this, your fantasy image and your, 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 this inner vision by becoming familiar with the way it looks as an object. And so you're kind of like imagining the ideal from the experience of having crafted these two-dimensional images. Yeah. Thank you so much. All, All right. right. Great. This was really so, so um, lovely. Ah, it's lovely for me too. I just had, it's, it, thank you. It's, of course, a pure indulgence for me to just ramble on incoherently. But, um, but I enjoyed it immensely and am grateful that you thought of me. Oh man, I am so grateful that you took the, took the time. No, I I was really touched by your soul. I think so. Thank you for that. It's uh, it's it's um, it's an honor and a pleasure. That's very kind of you. And I think that this these things only happen when the soul is in circulation. This is the other thing that we're trying to do with filmmaking. We're trying to circulate what we feel and think with other people. Yes, that's what it's all about. Yes, Jeff. So thank you so much for your generosity uh, that you showed me and us here in Bolzano and also now on the air, let's say. Um, to our listeners, I want to say that you can find the links to this episode and all the other episodes at um, filmindialps.com slash podcasts. And I would like to ask you to do us a favor. If you like the podcast, talk about it to your friends so they can discover it too. Alexander Diemitz is the architect of our website. Sergio Coca designed our logo and CI. This episode was edited by Nydia Gasparini, and Lisa Maria Kerschbaumer is the co-author of the project Film in the Alps. I am Martina De Biasi, and I thank you for listening to this show. Until next time, stay happy.